I'll be reading Isaiah chapter 66, verses 1 through 9. Thus says Adonai, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where then is the house you would build for me? Where is the place of my rest? For my hand has made all these things, so all these things came to be, declares Adonai. But on this one will I look, one humble and of a contrite spirit, who trembles at my word. One who kills an ox is like one who kills a man. One who sacrifices a lamb is like one who breaks a dog's neck. One who offers a grain offering is like one who offers swine's blood. One who burns incense is like the one who blesses an idol. They have chosen their own ways, so their soul delights in their abominations. So will I, so I will choose their punishments and bring on them what they dread. For when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not listen, but they did what was evil in my eyes and chose what I did not delight in. Hear the word of Adonai, you who tremble at his word, your brothers who hated you, excluding you for my, my name's sake, have said, let Adonai be glorified that, may, that we may see your joy. But they will be put to shame, a sound of uproar from the city, a sound from the temple, the sound of Adonai, who fully repays his enemies. Before she was in labor, she gave birth. Before her pain came, she delivered a male child. Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Can a land be born in one day? Can a nation be brought forth at once? For as soon as Zion was in labor, she gave birth to her children. Will I bring the moment of birth and not give delivery, says Adonai? Will, will I, who caused delivery, shut up the womb, says your God? Thank you, Glee. You may know that um, when I grew up, my first few words were not mama, uh, dada, but were abba, ima. That was the Israel of my youth, where Hebrew was a given. That was in the 1950s, but 100 years or so before that, Hebrew was definitely not a given. Um, it was called Palestine back then, and uh, Hebrew was non-existent other than the language for um, religion, as it were, for prayer, and also beginning, there was the beginning of uh, <clears throat> Hebrew being used in, a literary, in literary circles. Uh, people were beginning to write um, using Hebrew. But it was not a spoken language. And in 1881, um, there was a fellow named Eliezer ben Yehuda, a small, sickly, uh, but fiery individual uh, from Belarus. And he emigrated to Israel, to Palestine rather. And he was passionately convinced that in order for the Jewish people to be united, um, Hebrew needed to become the language that they spoke. And um, it was a steep learning curve, and I mean steep, because there was a very large percentage of the community that wanted to stone him because he was taking the holy language, the language of prayer, and he wanted to use it for everyday um, use, such as, I need to go to the bathroom. Well... Uh, something you have to do in any language. But 
people couldn't get their arms around the fact that it needed to be spoken in Hebrew. So he invested his life um, and actually that of his family in, uh, in the pursuit of having Hebrew become developed. And by the way, he's, he laid down as a uh, requirement for his, his first wife that he would only marry her if she were to speak Hebrew to their children. And, uh, and they did. His second wife, by the way, participated with him in writing of the first Hebrew dictionary. Um, you can understand that Eliezer ben Yehuda experienced a great deal of suffering, persecution, rejection. But when I grew up Israel in Israel, Hebrew was the current language. And yes, there are people from all over the world. You can hear uh, hundreds of languages in, in, in Israel. However, what unifies us is the speaking of, of Hebrew. And initially, much of the language was very much based on Scripture. There were idioms, there were phrases that came directly from the Bible. But as time went on, uh, the influence of the West, and particularly America, became more and more dominant in Israel. So that people had to learn how to say hamburger meaning hamburger, uh, because in Israel, McDonald's, along with every other country in the world, um, it, it came and um, um, kind of uh, plopped itself in different parts of the country. But in Eliezer ben Yehuda's time, the notion of Hebrew becoming the national language uh, was a faraway dream. Uh, Israel at that time, or Palestine at that time, was under Turkish rule. And then at, at some point it uh, came under British rule. And the, the notion that Jewish people would come back to the land and establish a homeland um, in Israel, what was then Palestine, was something that was an impossible dream. However, it was something that is clearly defined in Scripture, in the Hebrew Bible. And by the way, it's never been negated in the New Covenant or the New Testament, like some folks like to imply. So God's plan has always been for the physical and also the spiritual restoration of the Jewish people, the, the, the people of Israel. And in order for that to happen... Yes, individual human beings had to engage and had to pour their life into the process. But what really made, made things happen, what really had to make things happen, was the power of God being engaged in the process. And for us who consider visions that are from God, there is a process that we have to go through if, if it is a vision from God, it means that it is impossible for us, for you and I, to carry it out. If, if, it, if it's our vision, then yes, of course, we can do it. If it's a vision from God, then no, we, we cannot carry it out on our own. We need God's power and God's wisdom. And we have a number of circumstances that we find throughout Scripture where that is the case. One example that really comes to mind is very vivid for me is a conversation that God and Abram had 15 years into the 25 years that Abram had to wait for the Bambino to come along, the son of the promise, Isaac. And God speaks to him and says to him, I am your shield and your great reward. And Abraham's response was not, oh, yes, God, of course, I, I am delighted to wait another 10 years. No, he says, in essence, God, what use are your gifts since you haven't given me the one thing I really want and need, and that is a son? That's a, a paraphrase, obviously. 
And then he comes back again. This is Genesis chapter 15. And in essence repeats the same message saying, I do not have a son. God, did you get me? Which is kind of an odd thing to say to God Almighty. And the Lord doesn't rebuke him. But simply says to him, look at the stars. You see those stars? You're going to have a lot of descendants. And furthermore, the implication is, I am the one who created those stars. Don't you think that I can somehow manage to bring about you having children or you having a son? So this was back in Abraham's time. And in Isaiah's time, we see a similar situation that seems impossible. And yet God predicts a vision that is going to come about. In fact, what the impression that we get is that God puts Isaiah in a time machine and zips him up about 150 years beyond his time and gives him a glimpse into the future at a time when Israel will have gone into exile in Assyria and Babylon and will have come back. So the message is somewhat for Isaiah's time for the people 150 years but of course the message like all that we find in the word of God is timeless so I want to just pause for a minute and ask for the needed enlightenment for each of us as we consider this passage in Isaiah chapter 66 Lord God we thank you for the amazing way in which you speak to us. We thank you, Lord God, that somehow your words leap from the page and they make impact upon us. And so we pray, Lord God, for that to take place this morning as we consider this chapter, the last chapter in Isaiah. Speak to each one of us in our own language, we pray, in the name of Yeshua. Amen. So how does God begin this message? Does he begin by emphasizing Isaiah and Isaiah's issues or the issues of the nation of Israel? No. He begins by emphasizing who he is, who God is. And this, folks, is a real paradigm shift for us. Because our perspective is to begin with us, me. What's going on with me? Am I doing things well, properly? Or am I screwing up? Do I need to improve? That is such a major thrust of our society and our culture. We're very self-centered, self-focused. And the challenge for us is to learn to readjust our thinking instead of us filling the screen To begin with God, who God is, what are his plans, and what is his ability and power to bring about the necessary changes. And Isaiah begins with that. This is what the Lord says in verse 1 here. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house you will build for me? Where is my resting place? Has not my hand made all these things, and so they came into being? declares the Lord. It's an important reality check for all of us at all times and all circumstances in our life to pause and remember the simple reality that God Almighty made this universe, that he has brought that into being, that he has brought us into being, and furthermore, that part of the situation is the fact that he has a strategic plan for mankind. And here in specific, specifically, it refers to the nation of Israel. So he begins by saying, this is who I am. And if you understand and get who I am, then you're not going to be filled with yourself, but rather you're going to be focused on what I want and what I have said, what I have spoken. This is the one I esteem in verse 2. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. 
<clears throat> what does it mean to tremble? Well, it simply is very strong language here implying that we take God's word very seriously. We find it awesome, awe-inspiring, because we look to the word of God to guide and direct and shape our life. That's the kind of person that God smiles upon. And very quickly, he then points to the folks who are self-consumed and who want to do things that outwardly look spiritual or religious, but whose heart isn't in it. In other words, he is emphasizing the folks who are blowhards, who open their mouth and spout their great wisdom and their answers to every situation in life. You've met folks like that. And I'm not going to de delve into politics here, although that's very tempting. So the Lord here draws a contrast between the folks who are humble and eager to listen, to understand his word, and to apply it versus the people who seem to do that but basically go through the motions. And God reserves some, some very, very harsh words for people who are in that category, who are filled with their strategy and their agenda, their approach, and who basically want to steam over those of us who are committed to hearing the Word of God and applying it. He has very harsh words, and this is something that's hard for us to understand because we come away with the wrong kind of impression about who God is. And, and what the Word of God does for us is it presents a dual image of who God is. On one hand, He is very tender, very gentle with those who are humble and who are eager to follow His path. And He is also very uh, severe with those who are convinced that they know best and that they're not interested in listening to what he has to say. And so the, the verses that Glee read to us uh, were pretty severe and speak about God's judgment for those kind of folks. And we see all kinds of people like that today, individuals who use God words on one hand, on the other on the other hand, really don't endeavor to live what God tells them to to live according to the word of God. The Lord is very very severe. He is disgusted with hypocrisy, and particularly in this context, God is speaking later on not only to the hypocrites within the nation of Israel. And by the way, let, let me very quickly point to the fact that God is an equal opportunity judge. Wherever there is hypocrisy and sin, he will point it out, whether it is with his people, whether it's the nation of Israel, whether it's folks who are believers and followers of Yeshua, or someone out there in the, the, the world and society as, as a whole. And since today is Yom Atzmaut, I wanted to take a moment or so and emphasize how that applies to folks who are convinced that God is done with the nation of Israel. And unfortunately, that is a large percentage of people who claim to be Bible-believing Christians who are convinced, convinced that what God had given in the Word of God very explicitly, very specifically, applying to the nation of Israel, speaking about restoration of the nation, uh, no longer applies to the people of Israel, but can only apply to them who are followers of Yeshua in the church, in the congregation of God. You see all kinds of bad press today, uh, 
that is mentioned in, in the media against Israel. It seems like every misstep the nation makes is highlighted and, and put on, on the large screen. And on the other hand, wrong actions, horrendous actions that are carried out by enemies of Israel are minimized. I've been told that the United Nations the past year has had something like 200 resolutions, negative resolution against the nation of Israel. And while I'm well aware of the nation of Israel, I lived there, most of my family is in Israel, I'm aware of the fact that perfection exists in one place. It certainly is not in Israel, nor is it in the United States of America, in case you wonder. And yes, I'm aware of the fact that God doesn't whitewash anybody's sins. You see that throughout Scripture. God is very, very emphatic about the sins of Israel. But by the same token, my basic question is to those who point a bony finger at Israel is simply to say, what about you? What about the nation in which we live and other nations in the Middle East? Do you, in, for, for, for a moment, do you consider that Israel alone bears responsibility, that everybody else is fully justified in all their actions? I find that amazingly hypocritical and inappropriate. And furthermore, what I do find throughout Scripture, including this chapter, is the fact that because God is committed to the eternal existence of the nation of Israel, that he sets his face actively against those who consider themselves to be Israel's enemies. Now let me point out very, very quickly that the love of Israel in no way, shape, or form conveys hatred of Arabs and, and Muslims in general. God has a heart of compassion for all people. And if you love Israel, you will love other people as well. In fact, we see that the nation of Israel today conveys that kind of an attitude that whenever you have some sort of a, a catastrophe worldwide, the first responders are the people of Israel, the state of Israel, even in faraway places like Nepal. So my point simply is twofold here is to say that, yes, I'm aware of the fact that God points out to the shortcomings of the nation of Israel, including here in this passage. However, for those who then look at that, and come away convinced that they are justified to become Israel's enemies, we have to make it very, very clear that they will face God's active opposition because he is committed to the restoration of his people, Israel. The same power that brought this world into existence is going to be invested in the full restoration of the nation of Israel because that's what the word of God tells us here in this chapter let me just read a couple of statements rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad for her all who love her rejoice greatly with her all who mourn over her for this is what the Lord says I will extend peace to her like a river and the wealth of the nations like a flooding stream when you see this, your heart will rejoice and you will flourish like grass. The hand of the Lord will be made known to his servants. By the way, when it speaks about Jerusalem, I believe it simply means the city that is known as Jerusalem, that has been known as Jerusalem, not New York, not Los Angeles, not Salt Lake City, nor no other place. There's absolutely no reason to take what the Word of God is saying here, allegorically or spiritualize it, to refer to some point in a dim and distant future 
when God is going to bring about the final restoration of mankind. Why? Because it speaks about the new heaven and the new earth. And so when you see that phrase, new heaven, new earth, you naturally think about the book of Revelation, chapters 21 and 22, where it speaks about how God is going to roll up his sleeves and get to work in a big way and house and, and do serious house cleaning and purge anything and everything that's in rebellion to him. And the short version is no, absolutely not. Uh, because what we see here is not referring to what's going to happen at the end time, but rather it is speaking about a time of restoration that precedes it. A time that the nation of Israel will be restored. And because of that, God will bring about a massive worldwide restoration to all nations. This is something that we see throughout the prophets. And we also see in Paul's letter in the book of Romans in chapter 11, when he speaks about what will happen when the nation of Israel is restored will bring about a massive worldwide revival. That's always been part of the plan. So what is that going to look like? Well, here, it doesn't give us the entire package, but I want to draw from a couple of other places for a moment to simply point out that when God speaks about restoration for Israel, what he has in mind is a complete package Complete enchilada, as it were. Both the physical and the spiritual. And let, let me read to you a couple of verses from the book of Ezekiel, chapter 24. Excuse me, chapter 36. This is part of the section which we recite each Shabbat as part of the Torah service. For I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. And I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. This is Ezekiel 36 and verse 25. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and to carefully keep my, my laws, my Torah. This is obviously a deep, phenomenal spiritual restoration that God is going to bring about in the nation of Israel. However, all of that takes place where? Not in the U.S. or in France. It takes place in Israel. And what God predicts is he's going to gather his people, bring them back to the land of Israel, and in the land bring about this restoration. So there is a physical, material restoration. There's a spiritual restoration. And as part of the process, the nation of Israel will function as a light to the nations, which is what... God had intended all along. Back to this chapter, and I'm skipping around, lighting on verse 18 and 19 of chapter 66. And I, because of their actions and their imaginations, am about to come and gather all the nations and tongues, and they will come and see my glory. And I will set a sign among them, and I will send some of those who survived to the nations, and he gives a list of the nations, to the distant islands who have not heard of my fame or seen my glory. They will proclaim my glory among the nations. What does that imply? It's simply implying that when God restores Israel, that what he will do is he will send people from the nation of Israel as messengers to proclaim good news about who he is to the nations that do not currently know him. This is something that he has called his people who are part of the body of Messiah, followers of Yeshua who are not Jewish to do today, but in, in a massive way this is going to take place with the nation of Israel.
And like a lot of prophetic passages, what we see is that they don't unfold all at once. I know God is highly un-American. He doesn't do things according to our time and our speed. We would like for him to put on turbo speed. And when he says, I will do such and such, that boom, it will happen all at once. But typically it doesn't happen that way. It comes about in stages. And part of what has been happening in, in Israel, with the people of Israel, has been the restoration of the land. Uh, I, I know that folks who describe themselves as New Testament Christians can get their arms around that because their attitude is, what is the big deal about this little piece of real estate called Israel? The simple answer to that is, no, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense other than to say that this is what God wants. And you don't argue with God. He seems to have special emphasis on places that he calls holy, set apart. So our sanctuary is holy or set apart to him. And also he has, he, he has emphasis on times that are holy, special times that he designates for us to come and meet with him. And our attitude, because we are who we are, is to say, what's the big deal about time and space? I will talk to God when I want to, where I want to, etc., etc. Yes and no. Yes, the Lord will hear us. However, he also is very specific in saying, I have designated certain things, certain times, certain places. And that's the way it is about Israel. God has specifically designated this little piece of real estate as the name where as the place where his name will dwell and what we need to remember is that the covenant relationship that god made with abram was spiritual yes it had to do with god's relationship with abram and the fact that god was going to bless all of mankind through abram's descendants but a major part of god's covenant with abram had to do with the land. Let me read to you a couple of statements. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for generations to come. And by the way, I, I don't have good reason to interpret the word everlasting as some short period of time, as some people like to do. To be your God, the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan where you now are an alien, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. Again, major part of the covenant relationship between God and Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and his descendants is the land. This is not something can be applied universally, to all people who are followers of God. And yes, we understand the fact that the, the other folks who live in the land, the Arabs, the Palestinians, also have their needs, and that's part of God's plan for them as well. However, the title deed of the land was given to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob's descendants. We see that re in, re emphasized in Exodus where the Lord said to Moses I appear to Abraham this is chapter 6 I appear to Abraham to Isaac and Jacob as God Almighty I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan where they lived as aliens then later on in this chapter in Exodus chapter 6 Say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians, and I will bring you to the land I swore with my uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. Whenever you see this phrase, I am the Lord, it's a marker 
to emphasize that God is serious. In other words, I am the Lord means, hello, this is me. And this is not just anybody. And so the title deed of the land was given to Israel. And despite the fact that the nation messed things up, as we do, God holds out the hope and the expectation of restoration that is to come. Now I want to come to the middle of this chapter in Isaiah 66 and park here for a few minutes. Before she goes into labor, she gives birth. And by the way, Israel is often referred to as the Virgin of Israel or God's spouse, God's wife. Before the pains come upon her, she delivers a son. This is 66, verse 7. 66, verse 8. Who has ever heard of such a thing? Who has ever seen such things? Can a country be born in a day or a nation be brought forth in a moment? For us who live on the other side of the Declaration of Israeli Independence, we may not get the full impact of the amazing miracle that took place leading up to 1948 and the Declaration of the State of Israel. Because I lived there and it's part of my DNA and my family and so on, I understand the background, so I want to take just a couple of minutes and bring you up to speed to point out the fact that Israel, being a state, being a country, today, 68 years after the Declaration of Independence, is an amazing fact that demonstrates the power of God because it was nothing short of a miracle. Again, speaking about my family, when, when my folks came to Israel, there was no such thing as state of Israel or the country of Israel. And so the notion of having a country was an impossible dream, especially in the 1940s. Remember, folks, that the Jewish people had lost a third of the nation th through the Holocaust. The people that lived in the land itself were facing a hostile British administration that in the 1930s and 40s had become increasingly pro-Arab and anti-Jewish. They, they prevented shiploads of Jewish refugees from coming into the land and, and landing there. Last Shabbat I mentioned one of the most grim episodes um, that has been put into film called The Voyage of the Damned, about the trip of the St. Louis uh, ship. In addition to, to what they did in turning away Jewish people, the British armed the, Jewish pop the Arab population, and they prevented the Jews from acquiring weapons. So in 1947, September 29, United Nations passed the partition plan that divided what was then Palestine into a couple chunks. Uh, the Jewish people got a big chunk, but most of it was in the desert. The Arabs got the bigger chunk, and they refused. And so severe battles broke out. Uh, the Arab population rose up, and it was bloody warfare. Um, Jerusalem was surrounded by Arabs who laid siege to, to the city for months. And so in 1948, in May, leaders of the Jewish community met together for an all-day session in Tel Aviv. And they considered the notion of declaring statehood. Now, think about the miracle of having a group of Jewish people gathering for several hours and coming with a unified vision, 
you've heard this, the, the saying, where there are two Jews, there are three opinions. And in this case, there definitely w were a number of different opinions. But somehow, despite everything, and, and by the way, a number of the people who were opposed to the formation of the state of Israel, Jewish people, Jewish leaders who were opposed to that, a number of them were convinced that the right thing to do was to go along with the United States um, proposal of having a, a truce with, with the Arab population in Israel. In other words, saying, okay, let's first of all cause things to settle down and then we'll think about having a state. And Ben-Gurion and a number of other people said, no, we have to declare statehood. They finally did, and I wanted to read to you a number uh, of paragraphs from the Declaration. I'm not going to read to you the entire document, obviously, but several things that I found particularly germane for our discussion um, from Isaiah chapter 66. Beginning with the following, the land of Israel was the birthplace of the Jewish people. Here, their spiritual, religious, and political identity was shaped. Here, they first attained to statehood, created cultural values of national and universal significance, and gave the world the eternal book of books. Interesting that the Declaration of Israeli Independence holds that as the major contribution the Jewish people have made. After being forcibly exiled from their land, the people kept faith with it throughout their dispersion and never ceased to pray and hope for their return to it and for the restoration in it of their political freedom. And then he, uh, the declaration goes on to describe the historical and legal uh, grounds justifying the establishment of the state of Israel and it concludes with the following accordingly we members of the people's council etc etc um, hereby declared the establishment of the Jewish state in Eretz Israel the land of Israel to be known as the state of Israel placing our trust in the rock of Israel we affix our signature to this proclamation now, even that required a great deal of dialogue and debate because you had the folks who are more religiously or spiritually minded wanted to, to say, placing our trust in the Almighty. And then you had the folks who were on the socialist, atheist side who wanted to deny that. And so they came up with the phrase, Rock of Israel, which can be interpreted this way, and can be interpreted that way. can be interpreted one way to refer to the God of Israel, but it can also be interpreted to refer to the heritage of Israel. So Ben-Gurion comes up with this very 21st century kind of opinion here by saying, each of us in his own way believes in the rock of Israel as he conceives it. Okay? That's very, very definitive. And, by the way, in the document, uh, uh, this document extends a hand of, of peace to the other inhabitants of the land, i.e. to the Arabs, and promises to foster the development of the country for the benefit of all its inhabitants, and that will be based on freedom, justice, and peace as envisaged by the prophets of Israel. Even for the framers who were not particularly spiritual, they understood the fact that the land of Israel becoming a state was based on biblical foundations. Now, I'm not going to stand here and tell you that this was produced with great faith and, and profound relationship with the Lord. However, 
Reality is, folks, that God is able to take us, all of us, where we are and work with us. That he never expects perfection on any level from us. And here he takes what is being offered. Why? Because that is part of his plan. It's in concert with his plan. Now, it was really what you would call a rough birth. Because that night, the Egyptian Air Force bombed Tel Aviv. A few days later, there was a large column of 10,000 or so Egyptian uh, soldiers coming up towards Tel Aviv, and they were driven away by a few Piper Cubs dropping some grenades on them. There was not a single cannon or a single tank in the entire country, folks. And Israel was facing the embargo, the United States embargo, the European embargo, all these other countries that had stated, the British embargo, that had forbidden them from having any weapons. And here you have armies of the Arab nations pouring across, determined not just to fight, but to exterminate. Let me make that very clear. To exterminate the nation of Israel. They made that abundantly clear in, in their statements. So how does that happen? That the people of Israel here emerge as a state that becomes productive, becomes a major player in, in the region and in the world in all sorts of ways. Well, it is because of the guts and the resilience and the hard work and the brilliance, etc., etc., of the people. However, that's been the case for a couple of thousand years. At this point in history, God Almighty determined that the people were going to come back. He used the circumstances, ugly circumstances, to bring about the people back to the land over a period of a hundred and some years. And somehow to work behind the scenes, folks, to bring about the establishment of the state of Israel. And this is so true for, for each one of us as individuals, for us corporately. God is always at work to carry out his agenda, his strategic plan. And much of the time it's invisible. We don't see it happening. So, of course, we assume foolishly that God is not working. And at some point, according to his strategy, his timetable, he makes things visible. And we sit up and take notice and say, wow, God, that's, that's pretty awesome. That's what we see with the nation of Israel. So a word for folks who like to bash Israel, which has become very popular on campuses and some churches. We're not fighting them. At Yeshua Tzion, we are not on a campaign to oppose people who are engaged in Israel bashing. Why? It's God's battle. If he is the God of Israel, which I have no doubt he is, then he will see to it that those who rise up against the nation of Israel and who want to annihilate it will face what Israel's enemies have faced throughout generations. They're coming up against Almighty God. And today on Yom Atzmaut, we celebrate not just a national revival, but we celebrate the power of God being unleashed as the creator, as the covenant-keeping God, as, as the God who is faithful. And yes, there are lots of things to be pleased and grateful about the way the nation of Israel has, has come together. And by the way, part of the picture is that there is spiritual development, spiritual revival, and perhaps with a small r, taking place in Israel. And what we're seeing is the beginning of what we expect to be the much larger piece.
As we see in the word of God in Zechariah chapter 12, when the Lord speaks the following, I will pour out on the house of Israel, on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and supplication. They look upon me whom they've pierced and mourn for, for him as one mourns for an only son. A full revival is coming to the nation of Israel. And when that comes, we're going to see God roll up his sleeves in a major way or pull the curtains and we will say, wow, isn't God amazing? Let's pray. Thank you, Lord God. For your unbelievable, amazing patience. With humanity in general, with us specifically. Thank you, Lord God, for what you have done. Over the last 68 years in bringing into reality the nation, the state, the country of Israel. Thank you, Lord God, for all the ways in which this has been a clear demonstration of your work. And Lord God, we simply depend upon you to bring about the fullness. Lord God, the fullness of what you have for the nation of Israel, and as your word tells us, that the acceptance of by Israel of her Messiah will bring about worldwide revival, worldwide resurrection. We look forward to that. We pray, Lord God, that in the meantime, you would give us the courage, the strength to persevere, to press forward, to accomplish the things that you've called us to do, Lord. All under your strategic plan, Lord, and the power of of your Ruach, your spirit. We ask this in the name of Yeshua. Amen.